<clears throat> the Dharma talk this morning, uh, 22nd of October 2023, the uh, last day of the urban retreat we're having here, is on encouragement and praise. They, they sort of can overlap, but for this talk, I've teased them apart. So we'll begin with praise. It's encouragement and praise in, in Zen practice. So for praise, uh, in Buddhism, there's the eight worldly conditions, or the eight winds. And they are gain and loss, fame and shame, praise and blame, and happiness and misery. And they're forces that can blow us off course, that can distract us from our essential work, which is singing to our true nature. Uh, so we'll, take, uh, we'll just take, of, of those four pairs, praise and blame or praise and criticism. People are often swayed either by their attachment to praise, you get praised and um, you feel really good, or their aversion to criticism. Someone criticizes you and you, uh, you take offense. And really, these two poles, attachment or you could say desire and aversion, dislike, uh, they're the sort of the two poles that we can swing between and they're really basic causes of, of suffering. And Zen practice, it's not that often, especially in a training environment, that a student receives praise. And why is this? Um, it's because it's very e easy for our ego, our small self, to cling to that praise. We become inflated and the praise only serves to reinforce or bolster our ego. Well, the purpose of Zen practice is to see through this limited ego and to experience, in the words of Hakuin, our true self is no self. And because of this, because of sort of a spiritual materialism, we can often cling to, to words of praise. Uh, we can think of ourselves as the cat's whiskers. This is somebody special, some person special. Uh, so you don't get much praise, if any. And while uh, Amala Roshi and I were in training at the Rochester Zen Center, each morning we'd have a work meeting after breakfast. And at times our teacher, Bowden Roshi would take the meeting as an opportunity to upbraid us in our approach to work. We've been slack in, in some respects, or to point out areas in our collective practice that needed to be addressed. This was a way of keeping a, a taught training atmosphere at the center. However, at one work meeting, completely out of the blue, 
he said something very complimentary about my practice. Oh no, I thought, with a sinking heart. Why did he have to say that? <laughs> In a strange way, that um, praise stung as much as criticism. I sort of my... Um, I suppose while I was in training, uh, I just wanted to get as much as the Dharma as, as I could the years I spent in Rochester. I, I sort of <laughs> felt like keeping a low profile. I'd be a good Zen student and follow along. So uh, that's maybe why it stung a bit. If our words and actions were in tune with our true nature, there would be no need for praise or blame. We would simply be acting in accord with who we are on the deepest level. And there's a Zen capping phrase that points to this. Great merit does not deserve praise. Or great merit does not receive praise. This is the merit that comes from right speech, right action, right livelihood, and the other aspects of the Eightfold Path. The Western essayist and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, The silence that accepts merit as the most natural thing in the world is the highest applause. And in the absolute sense, there's no one who gains merit, no one to praise and no one to blame. There's a Zen story that points to this. At the monastery of Fugai Ekon, who was the, the Zen teacher, ceremonies were delayed in preparation, ceremonies delayed preparation of the noon meal. And when they were over, the cook took up his sickle and hurriedly gathered vegetables from the garden. In his haste, he lopped off part of a snake and, unaware he had done so, threw it into the soup pot with the vegetables. At the meal, the monks thought they had never tasted such delicious soup. But the Roshi himself found something remarkable in his bowl. Summoning the cook, he held up the head of the snake and demanded, What is this? The cook took the morsel, saying, Oh, thank you, Roshi, and immediately ate it. The cook had nothing to defend, nothing to protect, and because of this he could respond in a, a lively manner rather than making up excuses. So in this, uh, in respect to praise and blame, there's a, a koan, case 11 in the Mumon Khan, and it's about Jaljo and the two hermits. And it goes like this. Jaljo went to a hermit's hut and said, Are you in? Are you in? The hermit raised up his fist. Jiao Zhou said, the water is too shallow for a ship to anchor, and he left. 
He then came to another hermit's hut and called out, Are you in? Are you in? This hermit also held up his fist. Jiaozhou said, Freely you give, freely you take away, freely you bestow life, freely you destroy. And he made a deep bow. Zhaozhou is, of course, one of the greatest of the Tang Dynasty Zen masters. And evidently, at this time, this time Zhaozhou was going around the country, there was a persecution of, of Buddhism. Uh, the emperor was a Confucianist, and he forced a lot of the temples to close and for the, the monks to return to lay life. Uh, and to get around this, a lot of Zen practitioners went to the mountains and practiced alone. So these two hermits may have been seasoned Zen practitioners. Uh, we don't know. There's a great book by Bill Porter, a.k.a. Red Pine, Road to Heaven, Encounters with Chinese Hermits. And at the beginning of the book he writes... Throughout Chinese history, there have been people who preferred to spend their lives in the mountains, getting by on less, sleeping under thatch, wearing old clothes, working the higher slopes, not talking much, writing even less, maybe a few poems, a recipe or two, out of touch with the times, but not with the seasons. They cultivated roots of the spirit, trading flatland dust for mountain mist. Distant and insignificant, they were the most respected men and women in the world's oldest society. It's a really nice phrase. Uh, out of touch with the times, but not with the seasons. In, in the book, Road to Heaven, uh, Bill Porter, with Chinese guides, searches out some of these hermits, and he comes upon one hermit so deep in the mountains, really old hermit. This is in the 1980s, I think. This hermit had never heard of Mao or the Cultural Revolution. He was so secluded. And in Zen practice at the time in China, often uh, after you completed your formal training and before coming, becoming a teacher, often you'd do a solar retreat in the mountains for a year or two just to deepen your practice in solitude. So maybe these monks are Zen monks and they're deepening their practice. So Zhaozhou is there to test them. So he visits the first hermit's hut and he says... Are you in? Are you in? He could probably see that the hermit was in. Very small hut, often no doors. And this hermit comes out and raises his fist. And Jiaozhou said, the water is too shallow for a ship to anchor. So he's saying, your practice is not so good. I'm not going to stay here. Nothing to learn from you. Then he came to another hermit and same thing, he calls out, are you in, are you in? And again, this hermit raises up his fist, identical 
to the first hermit. And Zhao Zhou says, freely you give, freely you take away, freely you bestow life, freely you destroy life. And he made a deep bow. So that's praise indeed. So when you work on this koan, you, you um, have to, you have to, the number of the commas is why did Zhao Zhou say these two different things when the hermits apparently were raising up their fists exactly the same? So you have to demonstrate your understanding in Doksan. However, there's a teaching point to this koan that we can talk about. And after each time, you can be sure that when Zhao Zhou criticized the first hermit and went away, he'd have looked behind and he would have seen how that hermit took the criticism. And that would be a sort of a mark of the, the hermit's practice, how deep he was in practice. And again, for the second hermit, after Zhao Zhou praised him and turned away, Zhao Zhou would have looked back and would have seen how that hermit took praise. So he's testing the hermits, of course. And the hermits were probably testing Zhao Zhou, too. They would have seen him coming. Aiken Roshi writes this. Without a certain measure of emotional maturity, it is difficult even to begin Zen practice. You tend to take the Roshi's suggestions as personal criticism and end up on your cushions with paranoid thoughts revolving in your head. Or you take the teacher's approval as personal praise and make yourself unbearable to your friends. But as you become emotionally mature, you can handle praise and blame with equanimity, with a calm mind. So, again, not to be buffeted by either praise or criticism. Really, the mark of a mature Zen student is humility. As I was preparing for this talk, I came across an article in the, in the Guardian about this, um, about a Norwegian novelist and playwright, John Fosse, who'd received the 2023 Nobel Prize in Literature. And in an interview, he was asked about the best advice he'd ever received. And he said, I think the best advice I've learned from life is to listen to yourself, not to others. Stick to what you have, not to what you want to have or wish you had. Stay close to yourself, to your inner voice and vision and how you want the writing to be. When my first novel was published, it got lots of bad reviews and they haunted me. And if I had listened to them, I would have stopped writing. I decided to listen to myself instead, to what I knew. Ever since then, that has been a kind of rule for me. Of course, this goes both ways. 
For some years now my writing has been well received and I've received many awards and so on, but I try not to let it influence my writing in any way. Good reaction or bad reaction, it doesn't matter. I stick to what I know, what I feel I need to know, what I can do and not what I want to do. So again, he's saying basically not to be swayed by praise or criticism. However, I should add a caveat. Uh, sometimes if you're a writer, it's good to get criticism or feedback. A lot of writers do. Um, f with my manuscripts, I always get a Malaroshi to, to read them through. And she always makes some really good suggestions, most of which I, I take up. And if you're right, it's also good to work with a good editor who can provide good suggestions or even criticism. So you're a writer, you're not entirely alone. You're supported by others in your work. Shen Yin, a very respected modern um, Chinese Zen Chan master, said this, you should be thankful to people who criticize you because their remarks are beneficial to your practice. Even if you are not what the critics claim, and even if you have done none of the things they accuse you of doing, such criticism will make you more alert. It will sharpen your vigilance. It will help you to prevent becoming what critics have perceived you to be and from doing what critics think you have done. So that's a really, um, a really interesting way to receive criticism, to just be sharpened by it. Wo Gu, a contemporary Chan teacher, is one of Shengen's Dharma successors. And he writes, when I was a young novice, I used to be proud of my meditation experiences and insights. Master Shen Yin's way of teaching me was to simply squash that arrogance. He would often ask me to do a task, then publicly embarrass me or find opportunities to scold me. What did you do that for, you idiot? Everyone would laugh at me as a result. My immediate reaction used to be to reply, you told me to do that. I would argue in my mind about how wrong he was. In truth, he was right. My arrogance needed to be squashed. He reflected exactly what I needed to see, my own attachment. His compassion gave me life. Needless to say, Master Shen Yin saw Guo Gu's potential and knew he could take harsh criticism. Uh, however, <clears throat> I haven't heard of such harsh harshness in the context of Western Zen. Our teacher, Bowden Roshi, said that he received little positive feedback from his teacher, 
Roshi Kaplow, who had trained for 13 years in Japan and made a conscious effort to be more supportive of his students. While we were uh, at, the, at the Rochester Zen Center, a retired Turkish diplomat came for a training period. He was actually the ex-wife of a senior student at the Zen Center. Sorry, the ex-husband of a, a senior student at the Rochester Center. And this guy, he was really urbane and well-read. Uh, I remember we had a really great chat with Italo Calvino, an Italian writer that we both really liked. And he had some fascinating stories of his life as a diplomat. And I looked forward to hearing more of his stories because it's not often you meet such a, someone from such an interesting background. But on the second morning of his training period, after wake up at 5.15 a.m., and before early morning sitting at 5.45 a.m., Sevan, the head of Zendo, found him in the staff kitchen, preparing himself something to eat. This was contrary to the training guidelines. Breakfast comes after the early morning sitting, and he was told, in no uncertain terms, to get to the Zendo. Straight after breakfast, he packed his bags and headed out the door. And we didn't see him again. So, so unfortunately, Zen training was not for him. Okay, so for the second part of the talk, we'll now go to encouragement. A while ago, a friend in Sydney, a Japanese visual artist, posted a link on Facebook to a long poem she wrote about a trip she did with her family to mainland China, visiting places where they had once lived. It was a lively account uh, with lots of cross-cultural insights about a Japanese tour group being on a tour bus with an over-enthusiastic Chinese guide. I wrote that it was a, a great poem which it was. And she replied, thank you for those encouraging words, especially coming from you. And by that she meant coming from a, an established writer. And this got me thinking about the importance of encouragement and how we sometimes miss the opportunity to give encouragement in our everyday interactions. And actually, her, when she wrote, thank you for those encouraging words, that was the, the seed for this Dharma talk. And in contrast to praise, one of the Zen teacher's main roles is to offer encouragement. She is there to support the student in his or her practice, giving advice and encouragement usually in the Doksan room, when needed. In our tradition, the teacher is like a mentor or a coach, someone who has gone ahead on the path and knows the terrain. A Zen teacher 
because she has been there herself, is able to point out the pitfalls, the dead ends, and the wrong turns we often take in our practice. We can feel discouraged, which happens to us all. And when we feel discouraged, a few words from the teacher can sort of lift us up and put us back on track. I remember the end of one intense seven-day session, and in my last Doksan, Bodhen, Bodhen Roshi said, well, you got the closest in this session. And he meant that I, I got the closest in regards to seeing into Mu. And with those words, it sort of propelled me to redouble my efforts in the next session. So encouragement is, is really a, an important part of, of Zen practice. And here's Aiken Roshi again. Some portion of my work as a teacher is always given over to offering encouragement. I remember times of great discouragement in my own early practice and am eternally grateful to my teachers who always took my complaints seriously and gave me the support I needed. Now, in turn, it is my task to repay their kindness by diverting their encouraging words to my students, rededicating their wisdom and compassion. So, Zen teachers have been supported by their teachers, and in turn, Zen teachers support their students. Not only teachers give us encouragement, uh, it's encouraging to be part of a group. It's encouraging for a center to have people coming to the sittings and attending urban retreats and sessions. This is really, uh, it's so encouraging to see. When we sit together, this confirms the fundamental Buddhist teaching of interdependence, that no one is separate. The effort that you make in your practice encourages me to make an effort in my practice. During one winter session in Rochester, uh, I would take my mat and cushion onto the back deck. Uh, Rochester's in upstate New York, so there's long winters, sometimes five or more months of winter, and it snows a lot. So I take my, my mat and cushion onto the back deck, and I was bundled up against the cold and wore a Russian fur hat, which my teacher had given to me. Actually, this, this fur hat had quite a history. It was given to my teacher, Bowden Roshi, when he was... Um, in Poland, supervising a session with Rashi Kaplow. While I was in Poland, a Red Army guard, this was before the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think sold him this Russian fur hat. Uh, anyway, after session, one of the participants said that he was inspired to see me late at night in the kitchen 
when they came in to get some crackers. And crackers were usually put out after 10 p.m. in Sishin to encourage people to to continue sitting after the evening rounds. And we do this in our Sishins. It's called Yaza, late night sitting, informal sitting. But actually, uh, it was not that I was making a special effort in my late night sitting. It was more the romance of sitting on the back deck in the depths of winter, watching the, the snowflakes cascading down. So I was sort of caught up in the romance of that as well. And for a number of years, while in long-term training at the Rochester Zen Centre, I was fortunate to work with the head of Zendo, Sevan Ross, who later became the teacher of the Chicago Zen Centre. And Sevan, he's Italian-American, came from Pittsburgh, which is a very blue-collar American city. His father was a miner. So together, uh, part of my job, together we organized ceremonies and other activities at the center. And in his former life, or lives, um, Sivan had been a financial manager, a college dean, and a headhunter for a computer company. And in his youth, he'd worked at numerous jobs, from florist shops to cigar stores. So he came from a a working class background, which was a bit of an anomaly at the center. Uh, Anyway, he was great to work with, always encouraging and a a great delegator. I really learned the importance of working someone who knew how to delegate, who trusted you to do a job, gave you the instructions, and then let you do it. The opposite of sometimes you get people who love to micromanage, and tweak everything. Seven was the opposite of that. So I I really learned a lot from him. And he was so kind as well. Uh, Seven and his wife Kathy became our good friends and their presence supported us in our years in Rochester. Seven liked to give us bags and suitcases when we were about to travel, as well as pens and timepieces, and I, um, I still wear the Eddie Bauer watch that he gave me back in, I think, about 1996. It's still going. Um, so he was an important presence for me. So I, I bow in his direction. And towards the end of our stay in Rochester, we were also involved in the building of the Rural Retreat Centre at Shapin Mill. And spearheading the operation was Lou Kubica, a senior member of the Rochester Zen Centre and a builder. And Lou would organise the contractors as well as the volunteers, the Sangha volunteers. And both Amala Roshi and I worked on laying shingles on the roof of the main building and 
tongue and groove oak flooring in the basement, which acted as a zendo in the early years of the project. So we spent many hours um, laying the floorboards. And like Sevan, Lou was very clear in his instructions. And for the floor laying, we could choose the planks of timber ourselves, taking note of the patterns of the grain, and then secure them in place with a nail gun, which sort of it shot a long nail invisibly into the two pieces of, of timber. And I remember, uh, and from time to time, I think we had a, uh, there were several crews laying the floorboards, and for, from time to time, the nail guns would jam. And I remember the patient way Lou would take the gun apart and reassemble it to get it working again. And that in itself was a teaching. And Lou would later be ordained as a Zen priest, and he now goes by the name of Wayman. And he and his wife Errol continue to live out at Chapin Mill. So I, I also bow in in Lou's direction. And in our lineage, which is the Hakuin Yasutani line of Zen, it's customary from time to time for the teacher or a senior student to give a, a brief talk in the Zendo. We do that here. And during a seven-day session, the monitors, along with the teacher, also give impromptu talks. And this is a way to enliven the Zendo and encourage people to go deeper into their practice. An effective encouragement talk can change the atmosphere in the Zendo, especially during session, and energize all the participants. Audrey Fernandez, one of the founding members of the Rochester Zen Center, recalled that the most inspiring talks that Roshi Kaplow gave were often during Sesshin, when he would return to the Zendo after seeing 40 or more people in Doksan and give a spontaneous talk. In my own practice, during one session, Mu opened after an encouragement talk by Sevan, the head monitor. Uh, from what I remember, it was a dramatic talk about miners using dynamite to blast their way through a tunnel. Uh, anyway, uh, it was what I needed to hear at the time. And later on, towards the end of my time in Rochester, um, both Roshi and, and I would sometimes give encouragement talks during Sesshin. And um, one time, someone came up to me and said, oh, that was a great talk. Um, can I have it? Um, I said, no, um, it wasn't written down, it's gone. It was just in the moment, and it's gone. 
However, um, there's a book by Aiken Roshi called Encouraging Words. Uh, and Anne Aiken, co-founder of the Diamond Sangha, senior practitioner and wife Aiken Roshi, she did write down her, many of his impromptu talks and they form the basis of this book, Encouraging Words. And so to, to end this talk, I'd just like to, to read a few passages from Encouraging Words by Robert Aiken and make, make a few comments. Here's the first, first one. Zazen seems difficult at first, for you are making yourself do it. Take heart. It will find its own hands and feet. It will find its own hands and feet. It will become, if you, if you continue doing Zazen, practicing, then it will just become a natural way, a natural part of your life. You won't have to force yourself to do it. Next one. The sound of the wind and the songs of birds are essential elements of Zazen, just as essential as correct posture. When the sounds die down, silence takes their place. But if sounds and silence are missing, then you are lost in thoughts and your practice is stalling. Let sounds and silence sustain you. Next one, Hui Ha, who is a, a great Chinese master. Hui Ha said, the gate to the Dharma is relinquishment. Give yourself over to breathing Mu or counting the breath. There is just a tiny step from distraction to attention. Take that step again and again. That's great advice for our practice. There is just a tiny step from distraction to attention. Take that step again and again. When you catch yourself lost in thoughts, just back to move, back to the koan, back to the breath. If you're breath counting, start from one again. Next passage. All things pass quickly away. This is the evening verse, line in the evening verse in the Diamond Sangha tradition. All things pass quickly away. Not to worry. Settle on Mu or the breath. And that will be the broadest possible space where there is no coming into being and no going out of being. Our context is not time. Our context is shunyata, the great empty sky. And another passage on time. Time passes very swiftly. Yet time is an abstraction. What is not abstract? The bark of the dog, the crack of the clappers, 
the sound of the bell, the cry of the seagull. Blessed sounds, let them prompt you. And in our Zendo, distant sounds of uh, a church service, singing. Let them prompt you to return to your practice. Next one. Attention is the essence of our practice, the teaching of all our ancestors. Incomplete attention is diffused, and from there you wander in old cycles of preconceptions. Come back to your sharp attention. This is the way of intimacy. Without attention, there can be no intimacy. That's intimacy with Mu, intimacy with the breath. Next one. Consider for a moment that each of your exhalations, however long or short it might be, is really a sigh. Let yourself down with each exhalation as though it were a sigh. Our grandmothers knew that when they sighed, they could let their worries go. It's a wonderful thing. Just think about sighing. Uh, it's very disheartening times at the moment. What's happening in the ongoing situation in Ukraine, and now what's happening in Israel and Palestine. And sometimes we can just feel overwhelmed. So it's good to sigh when you catch yourself being caught up in the suffering of the world. Take a deep breath and just sigh. With that sigh, relax a bit. It can be helpful. It can center us. This sighing. This, with sighing, it's this sort of letting go. With that sign, we can return to ourself, we can return to our center of gravity, and then we'll be more effective in, in our everyday interactions. So I think in this, these troubled times, letting out a sigh every now and again is a great thing to do, because it's an acknowledgement of suffering. Um, so just the sigh. Two more. Sometimes you are clear and sometimes you are foggy. Sometimes you are quiet and sometimes you are noisy. Perhaps you are constantly foggy and noisy. If so, practice there with Mu or with the breath. Nothing is static. The fog clears, the chatter dies down. But if you judge yourself foggy or noisy, you are setting up temporary impediments. Breathe, move, or follow the breath as best you can. Angels can do no more. It's a nice turn of phrase, angels can do no more. Last one. It's natural to wonder 
how am I doing? Let me reassure you, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. But please, don't linger in evaluation. It can be a big distraction. Settle in the place of no stages with your moo, with your breath. So, no evaluation. No thinking of praise or blame. Self-judgment. Just settle into the place of no stages with your practice. We'll stop there and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.